Uh, why don't you go to James 2.21, James chapter 2, that's in the New Testament, James chapter 2, and then we will uh, be going to a few different places. And I um, want to tackle a little mini-series in the next couple weeks, and then we'll be back uh, in Isaiah 40 through 66 uh, after that. We do have a special speaker that's going to be here uh, beginning of November. And uh, we'll go from there. been pleased to have a lot of different missionaries in. That's been a pleasure. Uh, that hasn't always been the case. Utah's kind of an out-of-the-way place. You've got to really want to be here. And uh, a lot of pastors across the country have missionaries calling them to give presentations to the church very frequently. And uh, it's, it's a rare treat for us. And so we've been uh, privileged to have that the last uh, few months. Well, in my Bible reading this morning, I came across, um, when I was growing up, what I thought were lyrics to this to an oldie song, uh, but it turns out it was a quote of the Bible. Um, There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to live, a time to cast away stones, a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. If memory serves, that's how the song goes. To every every season turns, turns, turns. You guys know the song I'm talking about, right? A classic hippie song. Um, I think it was a hippie song. Um, it, it, those who are out of my generation, is that is that the case? Rhonda's nodding. Yes. Okay, good, good. All right. And, um, you know, growing up, I heard that song all the time, and I, I thought, those are interesting lyrics. And then I read Ecclesiastes 3 and realized that Solomon said that. And I also realized that they left a good bit of it out um, when they sang it. Uh, but Solomon, the wisest man who ever lives, is saying that there's times for everything. There's seasons for everything, and he's right. And he, he gives these polar statements. There's, there's times for war and times for peace. There's a time to live and a time to die. And he's right. Of course he's right. He's under, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. But I've also found that there's times for understanding different facets of God. When you're talking to this person, you might need to highlight the holiness of God. And when you're talking to this person, you might need to highlight the sovereignty of God. And when you're talking to this person, you might need to highlight the grace of God. There is, however, one theme about God, and we would expect that, right? God is infinite. God is God is so big, and he's, he's one, he's simple, he's internally consistent all the time, but because he's so big and grand, we see different shades and facets. We see different perspectives of God. And we'll never run out of seeing those different components of God, if, if, any, if that could be said is true of God. God doesn't have parts, but at the same time, God has, um, there are character traits of God that are obvious. And so, as I've worked with people through the years, there's one facet God's relationship with us that kind of comes up more often than the rest. It's one that I often instruct people in, and it's news to them. And I find that it has a lot of application in how they relate to God, and also a lot of application with how they relate to others. In fact, I can't think of a better place to start than by thinking through how you're going to relate to other people. The foundation for how you get along with God after you've been saved 
And the foundation for getting along with other people is your friendship with God himself. God is a friend. God is a friend of sinners. God wants to be your friend. Odd thing to say, isn't it? In fact, what what faith is, what the journey of faith is, is by the end of your life, being able to say that God is your very best friend. Now, how do you know if God is your very best friend? How would you know that? Well, let's apply this metric. What do you do when something really good happens to you? Who do you call? Who do you text? How about if something really bad happens? There's a shock and you you need something. Who do you run to? I think we often run to people. Now, they might be God's people, so that's a nice step in the right direction. You've got a godly spouse. But it's a learned reflex, isn't it, to run to God in those occasions, to make God the first resort, to so know God and commune with God that it's, instinctive to move to God in any of those scenarios. And that's when you know that your friendship with God is blossoming. When life strikes, good, bad, indifferent, and your first instinct is to take it to God. So let's explore this theme a little bit and making God my best Just think of it that way, making God my best friend. Now, you might say, that sounds a little 21st century pop psychological, Pastor Bray. Making God my best friend? I don't know. I've never thought of God like that. Well, that doesn't start with me. If you think of Isaiah 41.8, you might want to jot that down, Isaiah 41.8. God is talking to Israel, and he's reassuring them of his kindness to those people, of his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And he says, I'm, I'm thinking of you and your people as I did your father, who was Abraham, and he calls him my friend. I'm, I'm thinking of you as I thought of Abraham, my friend. And Abraham is the first person in the Bible that we're, that we're told is called friend. The word friend is an interesting word. It comes from the word um, aha. Now, some of you ladies have a skincare product named after the same word. Does anybody know what that skincare product is? Very similar. It's not aha, it's ahava. You guys know what that is? It's a, it's a skincare product. Apparently, it's mud taken from the Dead Sea mud flats, and you can exfoliate your skin. Okay? I guess men could use it too, but it's primarily marketed to ladies. Ahava. And uh, it's taken from Israel. It's it's, it's self-love in that case. But this word love, it's, it's the word for beloved, for even a spouse. It's, it would be the Hebrew version of agape, which you've heard so much about from the Greek language. It's a sort of selfless love. It's a relational love. And this word, my loved one, is, goes beyond um, family, it, it, it even goes past saying that somebody is a friend, but it's saying that somebody is a close friend, a confidant. He's dear to me. A dear family friend. A dear friend. A loved one. That's our word. Ahava. 
And here, God, many centuries after the fact, is saying that Abraham is my friend, my dear one. He's close to me. So what was it? I had you turn to James 2.21. What was it about Abraham's relationship with God that forged that friendship? Well, let's look at James chapter 2. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, I'm not going to get into the faith and works idea here, but what James is saying is that Abraham's faith was proved by this trust in offering Isaac. He said, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God, a friend of God. And what James is doing there is he's combining this passage from Genesis uh, 22, I believe, where Abraham sacrifices his Ahava. God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son in whom you love, that's our word, your Ahava, your Ahava, and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, we, we see these words, burnt offering, grain offering, uh, wave offering, praise offering, you know, all these different offerings. And what we do when we translate those words is we have a word describing it plus offering. I want you to know in Hebrew that's not the case. It's not two words, it's one word. And they're only ever, they're very different words. So to take a drink and pour it out on the altar, that's a nesek. But to have a burnt offering, that's a ngolah. And a, a, a ngolah is distinct for this. It, it, when, when people gave a grain offering, the priests were allowed to take the grain and make bread out of it and eat it. When you sacrificed the Passover lamb, you ate the meal as a family. In other words, there was some benefit for the offerer in the offering of it. But Angolah was different. Angolah was put on the altar and consumed in its entirety. Nobody but God benefited from that in the sense of material gain. It would, it's like this. We, we have our little offering box out there. I, I asked my junior high campers this morning. How, I asked my junior highs, how many of you would be comfortable if a person went and opened the lid and made change? He put, he put money in the box and made change out of it and took some money out and put it back in his pocket. How many of you would be comfortable with that? And junior highs are terrific because they'll tell you the truth. They went, no! That would be bad! And I said, why? And what they came up with was once it goes in the box, it ain't yours anymore. It's God's. And if you need change, bring exact change. Junior highs are a bit pharisaical when it comes to giving, apparently. But the idea is that once it's in, it's, it's, it's gone. It's in, and it's God's. It's a no law. It's put on the altar. It's burned. And you need to make change for the offering box, please do. Don't allow the, the whims of junior hires. I'm just giving a point. You probably should say that. I'm just illustrating a point that 
And the law is, once it's offered, it's consumed and gone. And God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, and offer it as a burnt offering, killed and burned. Your Ahava, your friend, your loved one. And Abraham says to his servant, he says, I'm going to take me and the boy, and, and we are going to go over here, and we are going to worship, and we are going to return. And that's what the writer of Hebrews picks up on when he says that Abraham was expecting a resurrection. Because God had made him certain promises about Isaac. Isaac will carry on the family line. It's through Isaac to whom the nations will be blessed. He knew that Isaac would live. And so if he's told to go offer Isaac as a burnt offering, Abraham reasoned forward in faith, God must then raise him from the dead after I offer him, and we're coming back. And we're told, in Isaiah 41 and we're told here in James 2.21, that that sort of forward-looking faith, hearing the word of God, believing it, entrusting yourself to it, and reasoning forward from it, so endears you to God that he runs to you and calls you friend. And you become God's aha. Because of that exercise I think we all operate under the fear. You know, think, think of it like a tree. You, know, you, you climb the tree. and God says, I, I, I want you to go stand out on that branch in faith. Right? Well, how many of you who have been trying to like climb out of a river have grabbed a branch and that branch proved to be not a great friend? <laughs> or you have been climbing in a tree and you stepped on a branch and the branch broke and you had to grab hold of other things and you got scraped up in the fuck. Well, God says, I want you to step out there and the entire time in the back of our minds we're thinking, is this going to hold? Or is this thing going to break right from underneath of me? Can I really trust this? And God is saying, when you step out there, I am so committing myself to you in friendship that not only is that branch going to hold, but I'm going to move to you and run to you and help you. So the basis of friendship with God is his coming to us with his word and us believing and trusting, putting ourselves out there on God's promises and God's word. And when God sees that faith, it creates this symbiotic relationship of us moving forward in faith and God moving closer to us and that emboldens us further to move out in faith and then God moves toward us some more and you've got this ever-increasing faith bond that's built through the exercise of faith and then God moving toward you faster. That's what Abraham did. That was the life of Abraham. He's called God's friend. What else is friendship with God? Well, I want you to turn to Exodus 33. Turn to Exodus 33. 
I know I'm really bad at this, and I've said this for as long as I've been your pastor. I'm really bad at asking, are there questions? So let me take a moment and ask you for the third or fourth time this entire year, um, are there any questions? <laughs> so far. Okay, be thinking in the back of your mind, what are some situations in life where I could have really used this information? Or I could have really used this knowledge that God wants to be my friend. Okay, Exodus 33, we're going to cover this whenever we get there in Exodus. But it says that whenever Moses, verse 8 of 33, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone in the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again to the king, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses had set up a tent outside the group of people. He was receiving the contents of the law. He was getting help in judging and leading the people. This is very early in Moses' leadership in Israel's journey. And so Moses set up a, a private place for him to go, and it says that, that this was distinct. This was distinct because Moses would go out there and everybody knew something was going to happen and God made a big display of the, the pillar of fire coming down on that isolated location. But I have a question for you. Does going into the tent make Moses God's friend? Does the visible display of the fire coming down equate to God's friendship? Or how about the people's regard of Moses? If they worship the Lord as he goes out to talk to the Lord, they're standing back watching this man go out to encounter the Lord. Does that qualify him as friends with God? What does the text say? Make what what is it what makes him friends with God? What does the text say? What did God do? Yeah, God spoke to him face to face. That's what made Moses a friend. God talked to him. God spoke to him. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that 3.18, that Moses used to speak to God with a veil over his face. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into that same image from glory to glory. What Paul is trying to say in Corinthians is that Moses, as impressive and as beautiful as that was, it was exceptional for the time. Yet there were still limitations. Only Moses 
only in the tent, only with the veil, only at certain times. But we who are in Christ have the veil removed, have the tent pulled back, and we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We have these words that God has given us and we can speak with God freely and often. And what qualified Moses to be friends with the Lord is that Moses was speaking to him even more so for us because the Lord speaks to us through the unveiled person and work of Jesus Christ that we have in this written word. Peter says that we have a more sure word than even if you had seen Jesus face to face. You can imagine Peter in his old age preaching to people in the Roman Empire, and they would say to him, Peter, well, it's easy for you to believe because you don't have to believe. You saw Jesus face to face. There's nothing to it. You, you were an eyewitness. Peter says, yes, indeed, I was an eyewitness. I am an eyewitness, but I'm telling you, take it from a man who's had both, who had, who's learned to walk with Jesus after Jesus ascended into heaven. You have a more sure word. My eyes deceive me. <laughs> My experience isn't as fulfilling as getting into the scriptures and seeing this sure word, having God talk to you through his word. This is the basis for friendship with God. Let's just recap these two points very briefly. Number one, God wants to be your friend. He wants to be. And he moves toward people who put their faith in him. And a little bit of faith gets you God. And then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And God is more and more available, more and more, uh, not more and more available, that's not the right word. God, um, the knowledge of God becomes more abundant the more we exercise our faith with him. And God takes particular delight in moving towards those people who have faith so that they can have more faith. And the second thing is that God mediates this friendship through his word. He speaks to people who are his friends. God is not merely an idea to his friends. God isn't a notion out there. God knows people. Now this is a this is a a problem among born again Christians. You can go years and years hearing God's people, Christian people, talk only about God as though he were a theory or an idea. And God wants to be known as a friend and a person. And rare is the born again Christian who you realize as you talk to them has recently been talking with God and has recently communed with God. He's heard from God or she. And you want to get close to that person because you say things like this of them. When I talk with them, I feel like I'm talking with God. Well, you are because they are. <laughs> so this idea of friendship with God Faith and his word are integral parts of it. Point three. Point three. You don't have to be a saint to be uh, the friend of God. Uh, you don't have to be perfect to be the friend of God. You don't have to be righteous to be the friend of God. In fact, 
If you think you're righteous or good or perfect, Jesus doesn't much care for you. It takes two people to be friends. And Jesus doesn't much move toward those. In fact, we're told in the Old Testament that the haughty, the lifted up, the arrogant, God knows those of us who memorized Psalm 138, God knows those people from where? Afar. He acknowledges them, but he doesn't move toward them. God moves toward sinners. And Jesus went out of his way to befriend sinners. And that's our third point. Jesus wants to be the friend of sinners. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, Jesus calls out to Matthew, who's a tax collector. Now, you have let's let's just have a quick little review of what first century Jewish tax collecting was. Okay? Imagine, imagine um, for a moment that China invaded our country and took us over. Took us over, uh, militarily invaded, held us uh, against our will, and subjugated us, and now we're sort of slaves to China. Just imagine for a moment that happened. And there's a very wealthy Chinaman who lives at the center of our town. He, he took the nicest place in our valley over here, and he's the tax collector for the Chinese government. Now, he doesn't actually collect taxes. He does, but he subcontracts it. And so he hires Joe Baker. Okay? And he gives Joe <laughs> he gives Joe ten Chinese soldiers and he tells Joe, I need I'm just gonna make up a number. I need a million dollars a year, and everything over and above that you collect is your salary. Joe takes his ten soldiers and heads over to Kyle Canfield's house, and he says, Kyle, I need you to pay for protection. And Kyle says, protection from whom? And Joe says, accidents. Kyle says, well, I ain't paying. Well, the next day, all of Kyle's truck tires are flat, and he can't go make money. And Joe wanders by. He goes, sure was accidental of those tires to go flat. Well, what does Kyle do? He pays Joe more than Joe needs, and now Joe's living in the second biggest house in the valley next to the Chinese tax collector. Kyle, how many times is that going to have to happen before you really stop liking Joe? Twice? Okay, Kyle's a nice guy. <laughs> That's the Roman tax collection system. Roman people hired Jews, and Jews with the muscle of the Roman military came in and collected taxes from their countrymen over and above what they needed to and got rich doing it. And used intimidation and blackmail and physical assault to get the job done. Okay? 
Matthew was one of those guys. Matthew's one of those guys. And Jesus sees Matthew and he says, Hey, I want you to follow me. And Matthew says, Okay. Rabbi's never told me that. Well, Matthew's overcome with joy that he's been forgiven these sins. He's not collecting taxes anymore, but he knows a lot of tax collectors. Unsavory characters. Mafia-type guys. Seriously bad dudes. And Matthew has a party, and he invites all of these bad dudes, and Jesus is the guest of honor. And guess who gets mad? The Pharisees. Now let's cut the Pharisees a little bit of slack. Okay. They were hurt by people like Matthew, were they not? But Jesus, they say, he is eating with sinners. He is a friend of sinners. And when they called him a lackey for Beelzebul, Jesus corrected them. But when he said, they, they accused him of being a friend of sinners, he admitted it. He says, you're right. Go find out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, Jesus isn't unjust. When he approached another tax collector, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stood up and said, I will pay back all the people I hurt. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. So Jesus was concerned about the needs of the oppressed, but he's equally concerned about the needs of the repentant oppressor. Jesus moves toward sinners. He's the friend of sinners. And when those sinners admit the ugliness of their sin and come under his reign, he calls them friend. Now, the, the glorious part about this is how many of you have withheld, and I'm not saying you need to, okay? I'm not saying you should do this. But how many of you have withheld some of the worst things you've done to your closest friends so that their opinion of you would not change? We're afraid to, right? We have this friend. What if they found out I did X, Y, Z? They wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. There's safety in them not knowing. But what if your friend is omniscient? And what if your friend knows what you did? And what if your friend, Jesus, remembers the things that you don't even remember that you did? That doesn't scare him away. It doesn't scare Jesus away. Your sin doesn't scare him away. In fact, your sin compels him to move toward you faster. He desires mercy. That's his heart. And when people repent, and they throw up their arms in submission and confession, and take Jesus at his word, he rushes toward them in friendship. And he speaks to them face to face. And he moves toward that faith 
in a loving relationship such that he'll wrap his arm right around you and call you his dear one, his dear friend, his close friend. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, last point. Well, you know what? I'm going to save that for next week. Okay? We're going to... This has huge ramifications for our relationship with people. And we'll get into that. But what do we see? We see a God who's eager to reveal himself, to spend time with us, and to talk with us. He's eager to. Okay? We see a God who's eager to spend time, to reveal himself, and to talk to us. We see a God who aggressively befriends us. Okay? You know, I think back to my high school days and how insecure most of my friendships were. I just wanted this popular person to like me. Or I just wanted this young lady to take notice of me. Or I, if I, I remember if I, if I didn't play well in the baseball game the previous evening, I would worry about my, about getting teased and whatever by my friends the following. Our human friendships are usually rooted in this sort of insecurity. But then every once in a again, you meet somebody who's, who just bowls over the fence, bowls past all these insecurities, and just wraps his arm around you or her arms and just befriends you for no reason other than to befriend you. And there's great security in that, isn't it? You're like, wow, that person loves me. That's... That's the friendship that Jesus moves toward you in. He aggressively pursues friendship with you. And then last, we see a God who doesn't overlook our faults or blindly accept our failures. He wants to get us past them. He wants to change us. But he forgives and pursues and helps all while knowing the evil we've done and the evil we will do. So you know, Judas Iscariot has decided to betray Jesus. He's already accepted money. He went and got the mob, brought them to Jesus to arrest him. And Jesus says, friend, what have you come here to do? It wasn't too late yet for Judas was. Even that betrayal still had an out if Judas had fallen on his knees and said, sorry. Jesus would have wrapped his arms around Judas and said, Betrayal in our world, is a friendship ender. Peter betrayed Jesus. And the next thing you know, Jesus is making breakfast for Peter. <laughs> but in the world of Jesus, betrayal is a sin, among others, that he gladly forgives, that he knows, and that he wants to move toward and I asked you to think. We've got three minutes here. 
I asked you to think of some situations in life where this sort of information about God and Christ Jesus would have been medicine for you. What are some of those occasions? What are some of those occasions? I've got I've got two. I'll give one to get the ball rolling. Okay. Have you? I've talking. There's a fear about the future that's sort of unreasonable, but it feels very real to you. And then somebody comes along and says, "Do you really think God would do that to me? Are you? Are you? Stop accusing God of being a bad friend. God's not going to let that happen to me." What's another one? Yes, you know. What did that do to your spirit, that sort of feeling? The opposite of whatever liberty is, right? Yes. ongoing, uh, e- even after you, it's been taken care of and put under the blood, there's ongoing separation there. In, in fact, there's not. Sometimes I'll ask God to make me feel as forgiven as I am. <laughs> Another. Ah, yes, thank you. What a reassurance. Yeah. reassurance. Thank you. That's very good. That's very good. Okay? All right. Let's pray, and then we will get ready for worship. Father, give us grace. Thank you for befriending us. Thank you for aggressively moving toward us. Thank you for removing all the hurdles in our friendship with you. May we reciprocate. No man seeks after you. You're the seeker. 
We love you because you first loved us. And so may we move toward you now in full faith, expecting to have your arms wide open as you so beautifully displayed in the story of the prodigal. Bless us now. May we worship you with whole hearts and um, just relishing our forgiveness and position with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.